Go ahead, I'm listening. A Melanin Minded Mental Health Podcast. This is Dr. Cam. I'm proud. What's up? Um, We just want to say hey to everybody. Um, We're really excited to start our second season of the podcast. This is our first episode. Um, We're going to be doing things a little bit differently um, this season. Um, We will still have our guests primarily, but... um, One of the things that I think came up for me is, um, in the first season is that I think we could, I I think that the content was really, really amazing, but I almost felt like it warranted a second episode, right? (laughs) Like we get into these heavy stories and then, you know, I had people hit me up and they were like, Hey, like. It's stuff I wanted to say. It's questions I had. I wish I would have did this X, Y, and Z. And I think that um, that would be pretty dope. But also to make it more clinically relevant. Like, I think that um, we will have um, more professional guests on our show. Um, We will be talking about... um, I think that now is just an important time for... um, It's just a massive global... Yes, because uh, <laughs> one of the things that uh, you know we we would like to provide for people is a chance to tell a story. You know the African proverb um, that says that um, history will always glorify the hunter until the lion learns to write. So uh, what we trying to do is provide lions with pens, provide lions with mics, provide lions with the platform for them to tell a story. But as professionals like we also have to be able to contextualize like and that does not mean for 2020 that does not mean for the 1900s that does like we have to contextualize like a, like she's saying like an entire global experience that not that did not just happen in a vacuum but but it's happening worldwide that is that that it has ancestry that has historical residue that have remnants of uh, where these things came from so to provide context um, you know, uh, with a more few episodes is is also, you know, what we're trying to uh, looking forward to providing this season, because it's it's important that the lion be able to talk. But I also I also want to say that um, for a generation of people who have not been given a voice for such a long time, uh, we need people. We need other people to kind of assist us in mm-hmm. in the framing of how our story should sound like sometimes I'm so emotional about it I can't get it out right but if but if somebody was in my shoes who 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 paid attention a little bit longer and read a few more books they probably can articulate my 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 my, my experience in a way that I actually cannot mm-hmm. and yeah I think that another thing too is that so much of the content was very very heavy like heavy and the it, heaviest yeah and I think that what weighed on me is I was like you know I I don't want to be um, superficial right but I also like we ain't all just pure trauma right Like, like that is a significant part of our experience that we don't necessarily have the space to talk about but there should be triumph in trauma right um 
And I don't know if we gave our listeners enough of that. Like, I think one of the things is, yes, we got to have heavy conversations, right? We got to talk about some uncomfortable stuff because it ain't necessarily for everybody else, right? We need a space because we don't often talk about the variety of our experiences. But yeah, we're just going to get into it and um, really get into what's going on. So before we do that, we will say we have a very special guest, um, Dr. Gabrielle Curry. Um, I want to welcome you. You want to tell the people a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I am in my third year of psychiatry residency at Howard um, in DC, and I am going to Seattle in like 15 days to start a fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry at Seattle Children's um, with UW. And yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at right now. Um. Uh, Doctor, what's your last name, love? What's your last name? Curry. Curry. Okay, so (laughs) Dr. Curry, can I I get your... uh, can I get your input on what you think about what's going on outside? Not not Corona. We'll we'll go to Corona later because I know you got a medical opinion about that. But I really <laughs> want to know about the people that look like you and I. Um, what do you think about what's going on outside? Um, it it has been so overwhelming. I think the past couple months I think just overall have been overwhelming um you know kind of surrounding the White House there were snipers on the roof of the White House um and we were just standing in a line at at a gate um you know just doing like trying to engage in conversation saying the names of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor um, and Ahmaud Arbery and, um, you know, just doing the, those different things. And the police officers, um, decided that they wanted us to back up, but I was at the very front, right in, like, right next to the gate. And, you know, there's hundreds of people behind me, so it's not like there's anywhere that I can go. Um, and so they just started, like, shoving with their shields um you know and again there wasn't really anywhere i could go and so one of the officers took his shield and he just punched me in the face with it um and then the guy right behind him took his gun and pointed it straight at my chest um and so just processing all of that um the last like week or so i've kind of taken a step back because i was just like this is this is a lot um and it's one thing to like know that this is happening but it had never been something that i had experienced on that level before um so so yeah i just there's so many emotions be a lot more of those just like oh yes i can't i can't do this um yeah. so it's it's nice to feel like i can go to work and know that it's going to be um, you know, at least with my coworkers, it's going to be a safe space for me to, to process everything and to talk about and to not feel like I have to censor myself. You know, and even like trying to make it through the day, but I had a moment, 
I think I was driving to work last weekend and I just started crying and I like I just felt very very sad right like so you feel like oh finally fucking people get it right like like finally but like how fucking many of us had to die how many of us like and let's be fair like not had to like as um Like, as much as I love to say, to believe, like, we still got a lot of work to do. But, you know, I just remember I, I asked Prof one time, I was like, which one hurt the most? This, now, this is before. This was a couple months ago, right? And I was like, which one hurt the most? Oh. And um, you remember what you said? Mm-mm. No. You said, um, I said well, Philando I, Castillo. I, I said Philando Castillo. And I said Trayvon. Mm-hmm. See, Trayvon hurt the most because you're talking about a kid cause, with no criminal history. Because that's one of the things they like to do. Who was not in the act of committing a crime because that's another thing that they like to do. Who was actually on his way to college cause, so he mentally strong too. That's another thing they like to do. Like You're talking about a kid minding his own business, doing the right thing. Walking. Yep. Suspiciously, obviously. And... The reason why Trayvon hurt, because not only was he a kid doing the right thing, minding his own business, not, you know, being a criminal, um, but a police officer didn't kill him. Mm-hmm. I think that I think that Trey Trayvon was like groundbreaking in the way that like anybody. Mm-hmm. We didn't even know about life. those lot those. I remember it was the first time I learned about the stand your ground. It was like the the way the way. Ahmad Aubrey is like a is like a um, is like a could he, he was conceived out of the Trayvon Martin because anybody who has a devaluation for black life get to actually take it out and Zimmerman walks free mm-hmm. like anybody it it it, it is it, this this behavior of devaluing black life and murdering black people is not reserved for cops anymore like okay. anybody. If this you can protect your neighborhood, anybody who feel like if you're part of a community watch or you if, if you see some specific uh, suspicious, you no longer have to call the authorities. Mm-hmm. Like you can you can when you're dealing with black people, you can take matters into your own hand. It um, yeah, Trayvon just that was the biggest one. For me, like, yeah. um, it was, it's, it's very dynamic in the, in, in, yeah. in what it meant. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want to appreciate the fact that, that I believe Zimmerman is Hispanic, like lighter skinned or something. Like, it, 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 it it's the way people look at black people. Mm-hmm. Like, that's one of the things that we don't appreciate, that even when other people from other countries get here, many, many people are socialized into believing staying free from that group will do you better, will benefit you better, suits you better in the long run. Staying, staying, being, being not associated with that group at all. 
like does does better for you. Mm-hmm. So like it ain't necessarily how white people see black people. It really is how racism is socialized and how we are educated around the world to view black skinned people differently. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think part of that is just because of like colonization of so many different spaces by white people. Um mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not just in America where um, blackness is associated with being a criminal, being ugly, being less than, you know, I think in so many ways, in so many different spaces. um, Yes, it is the, like, white... The darker-skinned Mexican is treated more poorly. The uh, But white supremacy is a global phenomenon. Or, like, the, the... the man said today, white body su- supremacy. Yeah, he was tough. Resma Minican. He is a therapist that actually lives in Minnesota, has his own clinical practice. And, um. Hold on. Right. And, um, yeah, I heard him today. Cam told me about him. Um, he tough. He was tough. I enjoyed him thoroughly. I'm buying his book today. Um, his book is called My, uh, grandmother's, My grandmother's Hands. Hands. And, and and it's a it's a racial um he does racial trauma work yeah it's it's geared toward racial trauma he's talking about it uh generationally and, mm-hmm. and and he talking about it biologically and then he gets into the spiritual aspect of it but not necessarily like mysticism um yeah. energy mm-hmm. and know. the science of it yeah it, it it was just really really dope now it was it's also one of the reasons why, you know, we like who we like when it comes to leaders is because it's very liberating mm-hmm. to hear people that look like you, who you know are generally docile and passive, to speak unapologetically. Mm-hmm. It's very liberating to hear, even if you know you'd never put those words together. In this okay. setting, you would never address this court like that. To see another person do it is that is liberating, like vicariously. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I think you see that in so many different ways. Like somebody being vulnerable allows you to be vulnerable. Um, Absolutely. You know, and so somebody being courageous in that way gives you like the the strength to be courageous in that way. Um, in your own space like yeah so, yeah so seeing somebody especially that looks like you um stand up and do something that has maybe been like deep inside of you to want to do but you haven't known how to do it or right. um seen anybody else doing it mm-hmm. yeah i um no absolutely um Okay, I want to say these two things. With Philando Castillo, two things. Because I was like, he played by all the fucking rules. Kind of what you're saying with, like, Trayvon. But Philando Castillo in particular played by all the fucking rules, right? So much so. His girl and a four-year-old child were in the car with him. Like, that ain't just, like... 
that is like if I think of like what is the most like how do we not see black men as dangerous? Put a child and a woman in a car with him. Put a four year old. He was still fucking killed. Yeah. In front of that child, right? And it didn't fucking matter. And that cop was acquitted too. And I think, like, I remember watching when they released the video of, I think Diamond Reynolds was his girlfriend's name, of the little girl calming her mother. Like, that shit was a lot. Yeah. And I think the argument was this little girl... The, this woman who just watched the person she loved be murdered, like had more self-control than the officer. And I don't know. The shit just hurt. It's just so fucking much. I remember watching Philando Castile. And um, during the time that that happened, I had actually wrote a piece called Cultural, Com- Cultural Competency. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at the video, I just remember looking at the uh, police officer. And you can't see his face, really. But you can see the gun still pointed and it's shaking like this. And I just remember looking at that like um, he's really shook. Mm-hmm. Prior to watching this video, I just so happened to scroll across the data that during the time that we live in, schools are more segregated today than they had been during the height of segregation. The piece that I was writing about cultural competency was basically that we don't know each other. Like, we don't live in the same spaces. We're not on the same bowling clubs. Like, we don't kick it. We don't know each other. Um, when pulled over, we generally, the I mean, the human range of be- behavior is not restricted for one race or one ethnicity at all. So, like, if black people get mad and get frustrated at the laws for getting the ticket, white people do too. So, the only difference is... The awareness you have, the familiarity you have with one. So when he raised his voice, because you've been to a lot of pageants with his son and you go to bowling or golfing with their dad, you familiar with the antics uh, that, that come from people that look like this. Okay. But because, especially as police officers and your your job is to fight crime, you only meet this other side within this context specifically. Like this okay. is how you know them. You don't know them outside of this. Like even your black friends at work, you know them via work and crime. Mm-hmm. Like I want to appreciate how you know what you know about this group. You know what I'm saying? And I I think that not to justify, obviously, but I want to appreciate like the ignorance we have on top of you know, because I don't know you, I have to go off what I what I've heard about black people, what I what I've heard about black men, what I've what I what I what, when I pull over Bunnyville or uh, or uh, Caprice or or Cutlass or when I pull over El, like when I pull over these claws, like I got to I got to know what I, I have I don't have these friends. I got yeah. to go off what I heard, what I think I heard y'all saying in rap music, what I think I know about when I pass like. I'm learning the culture in passing. I really ain't sitting down with it at all, but it's my job to police them. With a fucking four-year-old in the car? In a fucking state where you're allowed to to conceal carry? Them rules wasn't written for us. Touche. For me, it was a Tatiana. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there there were so many things that just like 
I saw myself in her. She was 28. I was, I'm 28. Um, she was planning on going to medical school. I'm in the medical field. She was just playing video games with her nephew. I love spending time with, um, you know, my nephews and nieces and, um, you know, just friends, kids that I've been around since they were born, like, um, in her own home, like to have a wellness check called and the officer yeah. parks a block away and does not knock on the front door, comes to the back, like sneaks into her backyard and shoots her through her own bedroom window. Right. Like just the, the ridiculousness of that whole scenario. Like I, I, and then the fact, again, like you were saying with the four-year-old with Philando Castile, like, I think he was maybe eight, her eight-year-old nephew yeah. has to, has to carry that for the rest of his life. Like, he's going to carry that trauma of being the only one in the house when his auntie is bleeding out. He has no idea what's happening. You know, he was just there playing video games, just being an eight-year-old. And that's something that he now has to carry for the rest of his life. Um, yeah. is just, yeah, that, that one. You know what? Now that, now that you say that, that's heavy. Yeah. To be sniped at home, like minding your business and like a sniper come see about you. I. And also for the the neighbor who called the wellness check. Yeah. I listened to some interviews with him, you know, him talking about this is something I have to live with for the rest of my life, knowing that I'm the one that called the police. And even though I did it with good intentions and, you know, it wasn't like a... Karen it calling. Like a, exactly. exactly. <laughs> like, like my neighbor pissed me off, I'm calling the police on him. But. You know, he was genuinely concerned about her um but it just yeah it's it's so infuriating and and painful yeah and i'll say this the fact that um there's so many so many names like that we can oh yeah you said that like like like, enough for us to forget like i actually I, i said to mir and then i stopped myself like the fact that like that 12 year old wasn't enough the fact that, like, and you also see, and this is one of the things that it forces us to do. This is why you bring up a story and people be like, "Oh yeah, I remember." Yeah, because it it forces us to kind of forget. Mm-hmm. If we appreciate what's really happening for what's really happening, it's all we could do. Like it's it's it it, demol- it it destabilizes you. Like you you don't have the ability to do anything but think about this overwhelming reality. Yeah. yeah. So like you have to kind of subdue. Yeah. To the quote by um, I think it's James Baldwin that said um, to be black in America and relatively conscious is to be in a state of rage. Yeah. All of the time. And so yeah. I think um, kind of going back to what we were talking about of like 
just being more passive in some spaces um, is like you, like you were saying, you don't have the energy to carry all of this all the time, like to carry all of these stories. And if you're really like going to engage with it and acknowledge the tragedy of what happened and like the humanity of the person that was killed and the humanity of the people that are now, you know, without a loved one, the humanity of the people that witnessed the murder. Um, it's, it's too much. Like you can't, you can't carry that all of the time and still be a functioning human in society. Like I had to call out of work one day in the last two weeks because I was like, I cannot do this today. I cannot carry this. Um, and I cannot forget. And both are necessary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Both are necessary. I mind a walk. Yeah. I um so the what's that man's name again? We gotta make sure everybody know this black man. Um he said <coughs> something that I was like, damn that's oh, good. Resma uh Minikin. Yeah, he said trauma experienced by Ooh. an individual. Looks like personality. Looks like personality. Trauma experienced in a family look like family. T- now, trauma experience in a person decontextualized, meaning that you 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 look at the um, you look at his behavior, mm-hmm. this consistent behavior of rage as personality. Personality. Because you only look at the rage. You decontextualize the experience. You don't appreciate it. What's really going on the entire way. He's just angry. They're just rioting. They're just looting. You appreciate it like that. Instead of for the the harm, hurt, the rape, the the deculturalism, like the, the stuff that's really have taken place to these people. That now they have, I mean, come on, man. They're here now. But to continue, (laughs) he said family. um, Family trauma. Family trauma decontextualized look like family ties. And community trauma decontextualized look like culture. See, like when you got a community of people who have the same collective ancestral experience. And they don't talk to each other every day, but they damn sure got a whole lot of similarities from South Carolina to California to Detroit to Chicago. They got a lot of similarities going through the same experience today. They responding the same way in each place where you see them located. It looks like culture. You can define this as this is what they do. This is how they are. This is, look at them. Mm-hmm. It looks like culture. That's because it is decontextualized mm-hmm. trauma. America has done a wonderful job <laughs> at that. That's why 15 years ago we lived in a post racial society. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, like, the fucking beauty of it all. Not for real. Like, <laughs> like that was a real conversation. Like, the fact, the fact, not for real though, because one of the things is the fuckery with the mind games, like that. Um, you know, just I, I, I appreciate 
I don't I don't enjoy that they play them, but I appreciate the fact that they, you know, that I can be enlightened enough to at least identify them. And um, one of the things that's funny is um, the concept of reverse racism actually beat racism being destroyed. <laughs> like they are so prepared. It's ridiculous. Like the concept that y'all all we in charge and y'all already fucking with me. Like this concept is already a thing. It's phenomenal. Shouldn't be a thing. So many of those things that you're saying, like the decontextualization and reverse racism, these are the kinds of things that I'm hearing from my family. From the people that raised me. From the people yeah. that I've known my entire life. And it's just, it's so strange to be in this body, in this time, mm-hmm. to hear these conflicting things and to be be told you have to make a choice like you have to either choose the white side or the black side you can't you can't do both you can't have both you can't still love these people if they say xyz you can't still love yeah. these people if they respond in xyz manner true that must man true yeah i want to um there's something I wrote a couple weeks ago, just as I was, you know, trying to process all of this that I think kind of lines up with what we're talking about. I probably won't read the yeah. long, the whole thing because it's kind of long, but um, so I was just journaling. Um, and I said, it is strange to be in this biracial body to carry within yourself the blood and the history of both the oppressor and the oppressed. To have friends and family saying all lives matter or, well, he shouldn't have committed a crime then. To be expected by one side to remain silent lest you disrupt their picture-perfect idea of a Christian America. Then to flip the coin and have people expect you to disown anyone and everyone who has raised you, loved you, supported you for decades if they hold any racist, including I'm not racist, beliefs. I hate what is happening in America. I hate what has been happening in America. I hate white supremacy. To my white friends and family, I love you and I have loved you and I will continue to love you. I can no more separate myself from whiteness than I can separate myself from being the spitting image of my mother. And I wouldn't want to. I won't lie, it is hard, it is uncomfortable, it is awkward to be biracial. But this is the body and the history I was given and I want to use it to bring God glory and to love people well. In doing that, I know that I will lose some of you as friends. I have already lost some of you as friends. I will shed tears over our broken relationships, but I will not back down. Not now, not tomorrow, not ever. My people are being murdered. I will not stop talking about race. I will not stop calling you out when you are being racist. But I will also not give up on you, even if you don't think you have a problem. The reason for that is people didn't give up on me. People continue to not give up on me. I have been racist. That doesn't mean I have to continue to be racist. I have been silent, and in doing so, I have chosen the side of the oppressor. That does not mean I have to continue to be silent. I continue to have areas of my life that need correction, confrontation, and conviction about being racist. I can do something, say something, believe something that is racist without wearing a KKK hood. Someone telling me I'm being racist is not an insult to me. 
In America today, calling a white person a racist makes them react as a black person would when called a nigger. Stop viewing yourself as not racist. I would be willing to bet you have some racist beliefs. If you have not been enraged, if you have not felt the grief of black folk, if you have not spoken out, you have been racist. If you have been annoyed by my talking about race so much, um, if you think I should focus less on race and more on sin nature, you have been racist. But the good news is you don't have to continue to be so. And just because you have been racist doesn't mean that that defines everything that you are. It is not enough for you to be silently, passively not racist. In doing that, you are in fact being racist. You have to be unapologetically anti-racist. You have to put in work. You have to be willing to lose friends. If you as a white person made it this far in the post, thank you. Uh, now please say something. Know that you aren't going to do it perfectly. You will fumble. You will mess up. You will do or say or think something racist along the journey. And the real ones will call you out for it. Listen to them. Humble yourselves. Ask for forgiveness and keep pressing forward. Do not ask me or any other person of color to do the work for you. We can't. We are tired. We are scared. Teaching you is not our responsibility. There are thousands of books, magazines, articles, podcasts, and activists who are speaking on these subjects. Do the work. Google is your friend, people. And then finally, to my black friends and family, I love you. I have loved you. I will continue to love you. I can no more separate myself from blackness than I could from the melanin gracing my skin or the three C curls on my head. And I wouldn't want to. I have not always fought for you in the past. I have not understood your pain. I have at times demonized you, ignored you, and rejected you. I am sorry. I am learning. I am growing. I am with you. I am fighting to be more anti-racist. I am reading. I am talking. I am engaging. I am listening. I grieve deeply with you. I will not minimize your pain. I will continue to fight for my white friends and family to understand, because in doing that, we are all stronger. I know that some of you don't understand my continuing relationships with people who voted for Trump people who are silent in the face of police brutality and murder, and people who claim to be not racist while simultaneously contributing to the systemic racism that has caused us so much pain. The only thing that I can say is that I would not be fighting how I am today if people hadn't stayed in relationship with me, challenged me, and encouraged me. And some people, both black and white, have told me that my posts are pointless or worthless. But I have seen more than a few of my white friends make changes, become engaged, and join the fight because of posts that I have made. I won't stop fighting for them to understand. Many of them never will, but some of them will. And for that, and for me, that is enough. Stay strong. Take breaks when you need to. Grieve. Be angry. I see you. You are beautiful. You are loved. Your cries, grief, and anger are not unheard by God. I pray for the people oppressing us that if they have to face him before repenting, he will not let it go without full and complete justice. So I think that's kind of like how I've been processing all of this is just like, it's so uncomfortable to like mm -hmm. have these two sides and to not know always how to, to perfectly integrate. And like, I don't even want it like the, the, the you don't want to integrate something that is disgusting and, and racist and, hurting the other side but I also don't know how to like I don't know I don't even I'm not saying it very well but yeah it's just it's so uncomfortable to try and try and figure out how to navigate all of this that's going on um in in that context I think a lot of people relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, like, 
my my great grandma would say things like that um, for sure. But the rest of my family, it's more of the like all lives matter. All lives matter. If if racism is even alive, it's mostly just against the white man. For real, though. <laughs> for real, nothing like a little reverse racism to get your day going, man. That's what gets your whole day going. Uh, or it's just a social media trend. Nah, they fucking with us, man. All these fucking Mexicans taking our jobs and niggas in office. And yeah, man, they fucking with us. That's why we need little kids in cages. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's only logical. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need so so let me say this i think that that was actually a good kind of segue into getting into your story and, um when i reached out to you it was kind of in a different in like you were very forthcoming i was like oh shit she just like i showed him the message i was like so i wasn't ready for that <laughs> like, and on so many levels dynamic right like because um, as a psychiatrist, as a patient, um, as a black person, as like I'm listening to us talk about our group experience and thinking, and we all going individually through shit, right? <laughs> like, like yeah. we all have other shit going on in our lives. Yep. And, like, we're trying to make it, and then there's this, this, like, heavy rain that seems to be pouring down on us. And sometimes we have an umbrella, and sometimes we don't. Okay. Jump in. Just... <laughs> <laughs> Unless you want to go in slow. No. Okay. I'm just like, let's let's do it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm definitely not a go in slow type of person okay. jump in the deep end and we'll figure it out um so yeah i i was raised in a very religious community um where mental illness was kind of viewed as something for people that didn't have enough faith um people that didn't pray enough um so you know if you were depressed if you were anxious that was just because you didn't um you know talk to god enough or ask him to take it away. Um, and it wasn't really anything I thought about. Like, I was just the happiest kid growing mm-hmm. up. And all the way up into college was just, like, you know, even in, like, hard things that happened in my childhood, um, it wasn't anything. It, you know, I could always just kind of brush it off and, and keep going. Um, so... I was in a six-year med program, so I went in straight out of high school, basically did undergrad in two years instead of four, Um, and at the end of those two years, right before starting my, like, official med school classes, I uh, decided to take a trip to Tanzania, and um, initially when I went to medical school, I wanted to become an obstetrician. Um, that was kind of all I had ever wanted to do or be. I wanted to deliver babies and I was planning to move to Eastern Africa, um, and to work in like rural villages, um, in Eastern Africa. And so I got online, I was, I was 21. Um, I got online and just started Googling doctors working in 
Africa delivering babies, <laughs> found this guy that said he was willing to take a student um, <clears throat> and raise the money and jumped on a plane by myself to go wow. to Tanzania to meet this doctor um, and to work in this clinic for a few weeks before starting my official like medical school um, classes. So I get there and um, three days in, we were planning on going to the beach, but there was a woman that came in in active labor and I was like, oh, skip the beach, like go without me. I'm going to stay here. Um, so the way the clinic was set up, it was like literally a like very crude. There was one room um, with just like cutouts for windows, so, like dust is flying in. Um, they didn't have any tools or resources um, and were very far away from the closest actual hospital. Um, there's only one doctor that works in the clinic and he works during the day. And then in the evenings he has nurses. They're not like actually like fully trained nurses, kind of just like volunteers that not even midwives. Um, just people that have like very minimal training that said they're willing to come in at night and, um, you know, help with the deliveries and really like, delivering a baby as long as everything goes smoothly is not that complicated. Um, so, um, we, we waited and waited and waited. Um, and the doctor eventually went home because it was, um, you know, getting into the, the nighttime. So it's me and one other like volunteer nurse that were there. Um, and the woman finally delivered it was a baby boy and she the the nurse lady delivered him and um he didn't immediately start crying and so she was you know suctioning his mouth trying to get any meconium or fluid out um and so she did that for probably you know two or three minutes she cut the cord and then she literally just turned around, handed him to me, said, suck mouth, nose, and walked away. Um, at this point, I have never even held a newborn baby, let alone, you know, tried to resuscitate one that wasn't breathing. Um, so, you know, I'm just kind of in shock. Like, what the hell just happened? Um, right. I put him down in the little bassinet that we had and the little, um, the like bulb section that they had was broken. So every couple sections, it would fall apart and I had to like put it back together. My hands are shaking. Um, you know, the whole time I'm just like, breathe, baby, breathe, baby, breathe, baby, breathe. Um, just moving as fast as I can. Um, but completely in shock. Um, so I just keep doing that. He starts to turn blue. Um, and then another woman finally walks in and she sees him and she's like, oh, this isn't good. Um, she uh, tried to um, put like a ambu mask on him. So the, the mask to give um, like breath through. 
Um, but we didn't have a neonatal one. So it was so big. It was covering his entire face. Um, and she also didn't know how to use it. So there's like a woman that, you know, doesn't know how to use it at all. Me that's seen it before, but never, you know, had any like real training or done it before. So we're just fumbling our way through trying to, to get this baby to start breathing. Um, and you know, meanwhile, the mom is sitting two feet away from me, um, watching all of this happen. Um, so the second lady that had walked in, she called the doctor and he finally got there. Um, so at this point, you know, I'm thinking, okay, there's two nurses in here and a doctor. Like I can take a step back because I'm the least trained person Mm -hmm. in here. Um, he started giving, the doctor started giving breaths and he said, somebody needs to be doing compressions. And so, you know, I'm looking at both of them, like one of you guys needs to start doing compressions and neither of them moved. Um, and so the, you know, the doctor kept yelling. So I stepped forward and start, you know, trying to do compressions the best I know how. Um, and he kept just saying, you're not going fast enough. You need to go faster, you know, trying to coach me through doing compressions, um, in real time. So, um, after a few minutes, he said, it's too late. Um, the baby is gone. And he looked right at me and he told me this was a senseless death. This baby should not have died. Um, and then he went over to the mom and explained to her in Swahili, um, you know, everything that had happened. So, you know, she was obviously distraught and, screaming um the family started screaming um and you know i'm just sitting there like no idea how to take in everything that is happening and one of the the first nurse that was there that handed me the baby she came up to me and she said why are you crying um so there wasn't like there wasn't any space for me to process that or Mm -hmm. grieve that it was just kind of like there's no reason for you to be upset about this get over it keep moving Mm -hmm. um so then the doctor was talking to the the two nurses and he realized that neither of them knew how to do compressions for cpr um so then he made me walk back over to the baby and Uh, use uh. him as a mannequin basically to teach these two women how to do compressions. Um, and this is all again in front of the mom who's just watching this happen. Um, so after that happened, the doctor walked out, um, to go back home, you know, after he had done all of that. Um, and not 10 minutes after he walked out, the mom started hemorrhaging. And I had never in my life seen so much blood. Um, and we didn't have anything to to try and stop it. They literally just have like a roll that's like this big um, of cotton. And they pull off a chunk of cotton and just stuff it inside of her to try and stop the bleeding. That was like the entire like plan. Um, so 
she is, you know, kind of going in and out um, and she's rolling around. There's, there's blood everywhere. At this point, she's still screaming and grabbing me. Um, and so there were literal handprints of blood all over my body. Um, she starts scratching me and she was also HIV positive. Um, so, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, this woman's HIV positive. There's blood everywhere. She's scratching me. Um, you know, the, the definite, like, I got to get out of here, but at the same time, there's nobody else here to help. So I can't. Um, so we did everything that we could, but like I said, there wasn't, there wasn't any tools or resources. Um, and so she ended up dying as well. Um, so then we wrapped up the bodies and... The, you wrapped up the body of the baby and you wrapped up the body of the mom. I wrapped up the body of the baby. The other two women wrapped up the body of the mom. Mm. Um, and we put them in a taxi with the family members to take back to their village. Um, and then I had to go back into the room where she had delivered, get on my hands and knees and mop up the blood. Um, and then I, so again, I was there by myself. I was the only person that was a, um, native English speaker aside from the doctor who obviously wasn't like the best person for me to process all of that with. Um, and so I just kind of spent the, the next week and a half just in complete shock like no idea what had happened and how that happened feeling kind of like it was like a terrible nightmare um so then i get back to the the states um i flew back on a sunday and my first class of medical school started on monday um, so when I say zero processing time, just, you know, I basically hopped off the plane and started going to classes. Um, so after that happened, I, um, started to have a lot of new symptoms that I didn't have any context for, you know, understanding mental illness, because obviously, you know, it wasn't something that my family um, or community talked about, or, you know, believed was was real. So I'm experiencing all of these things, have no idea what's happening to me, or why I'm, I'm feeling the way that I am. Um, and also don't feel like I can talk to my family or my community about it. Um, so you know, I, I basically had textbook symptoms of depression um, as well as PTSD, um, post-traumatic stress disorder. So with the depression, um, I was sleeping for like 12 to 15 hours a day. Um, basically, if I wasn't in class, I was sleeping. Um, I completely lost interest in doing anything that I had previously enjoyed doing. I didn't want to spend time with friends. I didn't want to 
um, go out. I didn't want to bake. I didn't want to do anything other than sleep and cry, basically. Um, I felt extremely, extremely guilty. I would just replay him saying, um, this baby should not have died. This was a senseless death. I would replay that over and over and over again. Um, and, um, f yeah, just felt completely worthless. And I would tell myself, you are a murderer. Um, that was kind of like the internal monologue that was, was going in, in my head every day. Um, just you, you murdered this baby. This baby didn't have to die. You murdered him. Um, I stopped eating. I was just dropping weight like crazy. Um, I just, I could not, I would eat maybe like half a chip a day and that's all I could get down. Um, just because I had no appetite. Um, and I also started to, um, consider suicide. So it, I don't know how long it was after I got back, but I actually went out to, um, this small lake and went up to a high point over the lake that there was a sign that said, do not jump shallow water with rocks. Um, and I remember I planted my foot right on that sign and I just jumped and said, if I die, I die. Um, and obviously I did, I didn't, um, I did hit the rocks at the bottom. Um, but thankfully wasn't, wasn't injured at all. Um, but yeah, experiencing all of those symptoms of depression and then at the same time was having nightmares, flashbacks where it was almost like I was back in that moment. You know, I'd be sitting in my bed and have this experience like I was back in Tanzania and I would remember the mother's face when she realized that her son had died. I would remember, I would see like the handprints and blood all over my body and would just, you know, be stuck staring at my arm. Um, I, anytime I w was near a baby, I freaked out. Anytime I was near a hospital, which in medical school is all the time, um, I would have panic attacks. Yeah, um, I mean, classic PTSD. Yeah. I mean, it was just like all of the bullet points. When I finally got to my psych rotation and was reading through the symptoms, I was like, Oh, this, this is, this is me. I have all of these things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I did not seek out any, um, like mental health treatment. Um, because that wasn't, it wasn't even a thing that I considered. Mm. Um, you know, it was so far removed from anything I had ever been taught or anything my community, um, you know, said was something that was acceptable, that it didn't even cross my mind to seek out treatment. Um, so I continued on in medical school and for about, you know, for a solid six months, I was, it was, it was really, really, really bad where my roommate, you know, was talking to people at the school saying like, I think she's going to kill herself. Like, any minute now um she really needs help um so that was kind of the first six months um the first year overall 
um, the, the symptoms were very active and present. Um, and then things started kind of uh, improving slightly after that. So I was still planning on becoming an obstetrician. I did my um, OB-GYN rotation, absolutely loved it, still loved delivering babies, um, you know, thought that this was something that was just going to be in the past that had happened and I was over it now and, you know, moving forward. So my very last rotation in medical school was surgery. And in my very first surgery, the surgeon um, started, uh, we call it pimping, where they like ask you repeated questions, um, basically trying to embarrass you or, or make it, you know, until you can't uh, answer the next question. So he's pimping me. The real they use in med school is pimping. Yeah. It's, it's like a, I don't know why, why that's the term that we use, but it is. Um, so he is pimping me during this surgery and I had not had a flashback or a panic attack in probably a good year. And the, the phone rang in the OR, which startled me. And I had a flashback of being in Tanzania and collapsed in the middle of a surgery. Like I'm scrubbed in assisting with the surgery and then just collapse. I'm in tears. I'm hyperventilating. I have chest pain. I cannot talk. Um, I don't think I was screaming, but like pretty, pretty close to it. Um, the surgeon is standing over me yelling, somebody get this woman out of my OR. So they're literally dragging me out of the OR. Um, and after that happened, um, I started having all of the symptoms all over again, like all of the things that I hadn't, um, fully processed or dealt with just came right back up to the surface. And, um, you know, I started having thoughts about killing myself again. And I was like, Oh, I I can't, I cannot do this again. Um, I was like, I need some help. So I went to my primary care doctor, told her everything that had happened. And she was like, (laughs) what, how did you not like seek out help before this? Um, so I got started on medications and got linked up with a therapist, um, who was just absolutely incredible. Um, and I had actually, now that I am talking about this, so I was in family therapy at the time. My family had a lot of issues. Um, and when I had gotten back from Tanzania, initially we were still in family therapy and I told our therapist what had happened. She tried to link me up with a therapist who told me that everything that I was experiencing was because of um, my broken relationship with my dad. And she wanted me to push all of my anger into a pillow. Uh, (laughs) So there was that lady. And then I also tried going to the uh, like school counseling center um, through my, through my med school. Um, And the therapist there, I think was a, um, she was also like a student that was working in the counseling center and was not prepared for what, what I told her. She literally spent 
30 minutes just saying wow over and over and over again um and that was the entire session like i told her my story and then she was just like wow yeah i can't help you (laughs) um so yeah after after that i didn't think counseling was for me um so then you know fast forward a couple years I'm on medications, decide to try therapy one more time, find a therapist that's just like perfect for me. We just immediately clicked and I felt like I could trust her and um, she didn't try to, you know, change what I was saying to mean something else, Um, you know, like that first lady had done and she actually had good advice and was able to help me process everything that had happened. Um. Yeah, so I um, started getting treatment and realized what, you know, just like the significance of the trauma that I had experienced um, and was able to like acknowledge that and acknowledge that I needed help and that it wasn't a sin for me to to need help or to ask for help or um, to be on medications and even you know my my family um you know told me they they were like you shouldn't be on medications too long you're gonna get addicted and um you know this isn't healthy and i i literally remember looking at my mom and saying the options are me being on medications or me me killing myself like that's that's where my mental state is right now so stop (laughs) um and it's it's much 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 better now um but yeah i'm still this is four year five five years um since i have you know been on medications been in therapy i'm still on medications i'm still in therapy um and it's it's been such an incredible journey just to see how acknowledging what had happened instead of trying to push it down or repress it um has just been so life-changing um and also just seeing like how i can use my experiences to help other people even like in talking to my patients like obviously i'm not sharing everything that happened sometimes that is very pertinent i think in a way we're we're taught not to Mm -hmm. But sometimes it is the right thing to do. Yeah. In that balance, you're far more professional than I am. I also cuss with my patients. I also work in a jail. I work in a school, so I do not cuss with my patients at all. I do not cuss with my clients. (laughs) But, um, But no, I... And that is really why I wanted, one of the reasons I wanted you, like, you on for our first episode, like, um, because I think, like, your story really quite eloquently, what we were saying earlier, like, we have all of this cultural trauma that we're dealing with, and then we have our own individual stuff, and we're just trying to be okay. And it may not be this specific and extreme. Even as professionals, even as the clinician, the provider, like we still have our own stuff. 
Yeah. And kind of like I was saying earlier, you know, like the days where patients come in and they want to talk about everything that's going on right now. And I'm just like, there's like, I'm also experiencing what's going on right now. There was, you know, what happened at the protest. And then there's also just family shit, right? Like family shit that does have absolutely everything to do with what's going on (laughs) in the world right now. But also there's some stuff that's just like, family is hard and you know outside of anything that's going on in the world family is hard and for black people we have to navigate all of that and turn on the tv and see somebody that looks exactly like us that you know like for me with the tatiana jefferson that could in a second be me yeah um and then still go to work and deal you know in for some people working in white spaces deal with people wanting you to explain everything to them people telling you you know like oh murder is wrong but the rioters really shouldn't like focusing more on that than on Mm -hmm. the fact that somebody was murdered um yeah and for mental health workers dealing with Mm -hmm. all of this and going to work and then hearing yeah, well, and what I was going to say is, too, like, sometimes I do share with patients. Um, I had a collateral today with a father of a patient of mine. and I'm sorry, with a mother. And she was very, um, she knew medication, and she was like, oh, I, and mind you, like, everyone don't get called. Right, like I probably, in particular, recently have been calling more family members. You know, they they can't have visitation. Sometimes, some of my patients are too sick to even make the phone call. Right, and um, the mom was a little defensive. Right, I can tell, and like I'm questioning his medication, and, and I was like, "Ma'am," and I said, "The first thing I need you to know is that, like, I get it." Right, like I get and I can talk to you about the medication. Um, I said, you know, I, I have a little brother who was diagnosed and started treatment of schizophrenia in jail. Like I have a brother who's been in prison for 25 years. Like so, when I see my patients, I see the people I love. <laughs> and it was like that was it because the core of what she was concerned about was that. I want to make sure my son is being taken care of. Mm-hmm. I go ahead. No. Oh no! Nah, I she um. I mean, <laughs> you're like don't share nothing. <laughs> I I'm not, I'm not saying absolutely no self disclosure, <laughs> but I'm also saying that um. You know, there's already a power dynamic, mm-hmm. so so I get um, why that can be seen as uh, making us more relatable. Mm-hmm. You see, I go through what you go through too. I'm you. I'm human too. You know what I'm saying? But um, because of the power dynamic, that's always in play. Again, I understand that there's a power dynamic, so Absolutely. I get why people do it because it makes us more relatable. Because, but because of the power dynamic at play. It also can can increase the romanticism. It can and it, it can increase the fantasy. Uh, we friends, 
Yeah. We cool. Like. I think it, I'm listening. I think it has to be like you have to just use your judgment in the the situation. Like I definitely don't. You know, my dad is is currently in jail, um, and will likely spend a long, long time in, in jail once he has his trial. Um, you know, I have significant trauma, not just what happened in Tanzania, you know, other things that have happened, um, through my life. And, um, I'm in treatment both with medications and, and therapy. And they're, they're patients that I feel like need a, a piece of that to be able to connect to them at all. Like they're so resistant, um, and feel so disconnected that they need a little bit of that humanity to be able to engage in treatment at all. And then I feel like there's some patients that it's completely inappropriate. Like Absolutely. I would, I would not share that with, um, yeah. you know, every patient it's, it's very few and far between, but I feel like there's some people that they need that to be able to, yeah. to engage. So, and I, I think it brings me back to, because I think like both valid points all very, yeah. you know, but that like, I remember, like in um, my psychodynamic classes, like like the traditional staunch um, therapist who sits there and doesn't make any um, um, uh, who like is completely flat, right? Yeah, he don't crack jokes. He don't. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't sm- like nothing. Like like very traditional, very professional. But and I remember. That then, like, saying, but this is the problem with that way of thinking, that, like, there is um, transference and counter-transference, and there are assumptions made about you when you get on the phone, when you walk in the room, like, like that you are not some blank slate, you know, unless all we're talking is white, middle-class men, which was who it was, you know, but that, like, when this yeah. black woman with dreads and a nose ring, like, walks into the door, you're making assumptions about me. Um, yeah. That um, true or untrue, right, are either going to make me seem more relatable or not. So I do see how that can, yeah. like, like to open up stuff. And again, I also don't think you should be on the couch crying with your patient, right? <laughs> that, that you're not doing a good clinical interview because um, you telling them you get therapy from your patient. Because let me tell you this, and I remember one of my professors saying this, because really a lot of times self-disclosure is really an untrained therapist who has heard something from a, from a client that was triggering to them, mm-hmm. and it, it brought their stuff up. Mm-hmm. Like I remember one of my professors telling me that like, a lot of self-disclosure is just an untrained therapist. They got stuff that they haven't dealt with that when they, when when they hear a trigger word, sure, it bring they stuff up, and then that's you know because she showed me tape. Uh, it was a female professor. She showed me tape from therapists doing self-disclosure and what Cam is saying. Like you can see the therapist session switch mm-hmm. almost to where we talking about me now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now this is all good. <laughs> I'm gonna take that. Listen, what? I believe that what I am doing is righteous. <laughs> like, 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 I am not 
manipulating. Maybe I am, I'm going to own it because I've actually, he knows. I have been like, as one of the black people feels like I'm tired of this and that. I don't give a fuck. I'm like, fuck the Seth Rogen. Like, fuck off. Fuck you. Like, I don't care what you say. Like, if you, I'm not arguing all lives matter with you. Fuck you. And that's how I'm going to deal with you. You post Candace Owens, fuck you. I don't care who you are. Like, I'm not going to communicate with you. I said Candace Owens is the black girl. No, like, she allows white people the space to have a black friend right now. I have so many people that have posted videos of her, like, now this is a black girl I can get behind, and I'm saying all your favorite shit. Like, <laughs> she is blackface. Like, 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 like Candace Owens is social media blackface. Okay, so I I have a friend that lives in um, a tiny, tiny, tiny town in the middle of nowhere, Missouri, and like the the neighboring town from where he lives when their girls basketball team went to state they had a cross burning so like this is the level of racism in a, a cross burning oh like kkk cross burning yeah. to celebrate <laughs> um burned across to celebrate what the fuck <laughs> i don't think they thought it all the <laughs> That's that's what they went with. So people people from this town are calling for the death penalty for the officers involved in George Floyd's murder. So mm-hmm. like when people from that town are saying there's a problem, like that's that's intense. Yeah. And then part of me is like, about damn time, fuck y'all too. But I, I still fuck with y'all. <laughs> how long is that gonna last, right? Like how long is the you know, activism and the I'm an ally, how long is that gonna last? Because when it's not in your face anymore, when it's not on the news every day, um, are you still going to be an ally and still realize that this is something that we are walking through and experiencing every single day, regardless of whether it's on the news or not. This is still like coronavirus. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of in style to be like black lives matter. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like it's a trend. Um, But yeah, I agree. Like when it's, when it's less, you know, in style, when it's not as on many t-shirts, when they don't make enough masks no more, will will you still get down in the way, you know, that, yeah. that support the cause? Like, uh, yeah. With, even, and that go for the corporations, too, with all of their hashtags. Do we see the boardroom change? Do we see upper management change? Do we see, like, women getting paid that, you know, don't look like you would like them to look? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Did nah, we see the that. whole fucking company shut down? Because Starbucks and pissed or off that. everybody today. <laughs> like, or so. And and do we see? I'm like, I can't go to Starbucks. <laughs> God damn! Like now, but now we have to choose. Not as good. Like like in a way before, where like we know these were fucked up companies. They don't. But now it's like, oh, now we got to choose. Nah, like 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 you. Can't just take us for granted, right? It's really awesome to be able to 
like have these conversations with other black professionals. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, that always, I feel like that's something that I take for granted being at Howard. You know, the mm-hmm. first place that I worked is an HBCU and I'm getting ready to go to Seattle, which has like three black people. And, <laughs> um, you know, I'm really excited to be going, to, going to the program. It's an awesome program. And I feel like I am passionate about having those hard conversations with white people because yeah. that's like, those are my people. Um, just as much as black people are my people. Um, and so, it's, you know, that's something I'm really passionate about. But at the same time, I'm just like, what have I done? Like, yeah. I took this for granted being at, at Howard and I'm getting ready to go into the space in this, you know, like time in our culture, like in the largest, uh, you know, like civil rights movement. Yeah. Yeah. that's ever happened in our nation yeah. and I'm moving to Seattle. <laughs> yeah. That, that... 2020 is a year, okay? Um, but that will be like, this will be the year that people were asking you what you were doing. Yeah. Where were you? That like, if you, if you weren't there, that might mean something to your grandkids. And one, I think what you have done is you have gotten yourself well prepared by being at Howard, right? For sure. But what I have never been willing to do that um, Prof kind of like, we were talking the other day and I said, you know, I'm actually kind of getting into what I need to like owning my own biases, owning the ways in which I have um, internalized racism in which I am passive and which I in which I participate in it. My thing is like if we want women to deconstruct patriarchy, women have to first and foremost acknowledge that they participate in patriarchy, right? So um kind of like the same thing though, like and it's been interesting that I've had some conversations and black people, especially black professionals, have a hard time with this, like are very defensive about like I have, I reinforce race, uh, racist ideologies or classes. And I think that if we can like kind of ease them into it with class, but it's really about race and um, like really want like getting into the my own shit. So one of the things for me has been that I realized that when there are certain patients who come into my jail, black patients, I always feel like, oh, I show up for black people. There are some ones that I show up for more, not intentionally. It is not a conscious, but it is what white people do. You come from a good family. Mm-hmm. You were in college. You're a professional. Like um, sometimes it's like, let's. Let, I'm gonna call the parents. I'm gonna call your family. I need to tell them what they need to do. I want to talk to them and let you them know you're well taken care of. When they don't look like that, when they don't look like me, right? As black people, like, like as someone who thinks that I take pride in, like, really fucking with, nah, I probably fuck with middle class black people more based on yeah. my, and that is a hard thing to kind of like acknowledge about myself that nah, like, I'm, I'm like, they are better than my other patients. 
They're all in jail. So this self-righteous, like, oh, because I work here. No, like, they're all in jail. Regardless of why or what. But there might be some 17-year-old boys who come in there and I'm like, mm, you got in trouble with your cousin and don't, don't make, your mama needs to bound you out of here. You do not need to be in here. Other ones come in similar charges um, if you're a foster kid. Um, if this is your third time or like, and it is hard to like really acknowledge that part of myself um, that is biased to the good ones. Yep. I think, I think I, I connect with that so, so deeply. I think coming out of, so I lived in Kansas City my entire life until I came to Howard. Um, raised by an entirely white family, went to a white private Christian school, um, went to a mainly white college, white medical school, and then came to Howard. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, and I came in, we did not talk about black history. I thought, all I knew about Malcolm X is that he was a bad guy. <laughs> like that's that it was, it was ridiculous. I, there was just so much that I didn't know. And so much just like implicit bias and racist ideas and ways of thinking that I had never, like nobody had ever challenged because there was never anybody to challenge it. Mm -hmm. And then I get to Howard and you know off like immediately people are just like you mm. <laughs> <laughs> <He> wasn't ready <laughs> yeah that one thing about us man we call bullshit <laughs> some, of some of it was, some of it was valid some of it was just people mm -hmm. you know yeah like day one this girl she asked me what I like to do. And I told her, you know, I like baking. I like making things. I crochet. I quilt. I, um, you know, like doing all these things with my hands. And she immediately just says, oh, we can never be friends. You're way too much for me. And that was the only <laughs> white people bake and crochet. And me. <laughs> An educated black woman. <laughs> <laughs> so some of it was just like bullshit. But a lot of it was people just calling me out like that is not like that is not okay and me having to come to terms with the fact that I am part of the problem mm -hmm. and even today like now realizing that like I don't always do it perfectly um and I think like in that what I was journaling that I that I read like so many of my white friends have said like, I'm scared to do anything or say anything because I don't want to be called racist. And I'm like, well, chances are you probably hold some racist ideas and beliefs and like that needs to be called out. Um, and like, I've, I've had to do that. I'm still having to do that. People still, you know, definitely not as frequently. Um, but like people still will call something out or I'll notice something in myself that I'm like, Oh, I, hate that that's in there and I need to deal with that and acknowledge that um, the racist ideas that this country is built on didn't just skip me because I am, am black like that. Um, 
I mean, it's part of the American heritage. Exactly. Yeah, so I think, yeah, definitely what you said with, like, having... It's, it's painful and uncomfortable for Black people to have to acknowledge that there is any of that within ourselves. Like, we want it to just be the bad white people. Sure. Everybody got a lot of work to do. I just want Black people... Like, I want everybody to do their work and everyone to do their part. I think that... Um, I want us to be willing to be vulnerable in the way that we are asking white people and other people of color to be vulnerable too, to acknowledge that shit that they have about black people. Um, and it's yeah. a difficult thing to do. And then we start sounding like all white love. I mean, all lives matters and um, I can never be, you know. It's <laughs> not, it's not, you know. It doesn't I'll, have to. All lives do matter. Like that seventy-six-year-old white man that was pushed on the ground. Like Black Lives Matter, goddamn for him. Like is is really everybody versus racism. Like mm-hmm. it's versus it ain't white versus black. Like mm-hmm. we not against them. Like we vote. We want everybody to win. We like just stop making us lose. Like stop fixing the game like this. Mm-hmm. Like give us a first shot at it. Like. Um, you you remember I sent you the little thing and it had the black lady who thinks she got like six years because for uh, using a different address for using a different address for her yeah. kid to go to school and then you know yeah. Felicity Huffman you know get get two weeks you know is for spending for college and mm-hmm. it it's amazing that one can be so privileged. Like the affluenza, like Felicity, mm-hmm. Felicity Huffman, like that one can be so privileged that they need a slap on the wrist, you guys, because they've been so privileged in life. They just need a slap on the wrist. And one can be, <sighs> one's resources can be, I'm talking about beyond the bare minimum, mm-hmm. but they should have known better. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the hard reality that, black people face in America um, has a lot to do with like a, a boiling point. Like, um, you know, my people was asking me why people still in the street, man, they ain't arrested the four officers. They from the charge of that. And, you know, part of why they still in the street is because it ain't about that. Yeah. Like it's about the whole system. Like, yeah, you may have to come home and, and, and hear about Trayvon Martin, but you just had to deal with like a slight sexual harassment at work. Mm-hmm. That a cop pulled you over. That a cop pulled you over. And that, put a gun to your head. That, like you said, you know, like, like that when you engage with white people, they still girl, gal, boy, you. You know what I'm saying? Like maybe, maybe yours is not necessarily with people who want to kill you or police officers pull you over, but you still, you still have to exist within a system, within an ideological culture that is anti you. Yeah, microaggressions, right? Yep. And and, and I don't want to necessarily paint them as microaggressions. All of them. But but some of them are intentional. Yeah. But I think that also speaks to why, like, poor working class white people. Because when we paint whiteness, we paint it as almost like a higher socioeconomic status as well, right? Um, And then they look at black doctors. And why are you talking like this? (laughs) Like, Like, you have more privilege than I do.
I think that's something that's been really hard, kind of similar to me having to acknowledge that, like, I have to continue, like, doing work to root out the ol- the ways that racism, um, like, that I've contributed to it or that I, like, have, think like, with patients, like you said, like, I have some patients that come in um, that are more, like, middle class that I like am willing to do a little bit more work for um like we were saying so it all of us being willing to take a deep long hard look at ourselves and acknowledge that we've all got some shit that we need to Mm -hmm. to deal with and process and unlearn Mm -hmm. um and that doesn't like cancel you as a person or an ally just because you need to unlearn something like you can still be a you know white person that's working to be an ally while you're unlearning xyz thing you can like you or me you know acknowledging that like shit there's some ways that i you know don't come that I got work to for all of my patients, mm-hmm. um, but that doesn't take away the fact that I'm still a black person living in this experience and like, yeah, d- yeah. don't have to be so defensive about still having mm-hmm. work to do. Absolutely. Well, I just want to really thank you for, uh, just a wonderful, what a fucking way to start the season, right? <laughs> so, he's clapping. Um, oh, man. Uh, we would definitely like, you know, especially when you get into your child and adolescent stuff, come back. Um, uh, it's just been a really, really good interview. Thank you. No, I'm enjoying it. I really have. I mean, I did. Um, not to, because I don't want to. I don't want this to lead into like nothing else. Another conversation. <laughs> but it is. It is um, one of the reasons why destroying racism solely um, ain't the answer for Black people. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that the way we socialize in America and educate it. Uh, we, we socialize and educate white people to be racist. Um, and then we say black people can't be racist. Um, but we socialize and educate black people in the same system. So if they can't be racist, what of black people? What happens to black people? And I, I, I contend that black people become um, self-hatred. Mm-hmm. It, it induces self-hatred. So like... Um, we try to um, say that we pro-black, but we also have a view of them niggas. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we not like them niggas. Who embarrass us. Mm-hmm. Who make mm-hmm. us look bad. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. The, the, the book, um, How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram, Ibram X. Kendi, um, he has a whole section on that. Um, yeah, those, I really love that book. That was one of the ones that like really challenged me and pulled out some of the like things within myself that I was like, oh, didn't 
I don't like I don't like that that's in there. But... <laughs> I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> that's that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um... <laughs> I don't like that that's in there. That's cool. <laughs> and, and I think it also speaks to you know we talk about doing the work, whether that's from social issues to mental health, <laughs> like. But the work ain't comfortable, <laughs> like, or you ain't doing work, like, yeah. like if it don't like make you say, "Oh shit, I don't like this about myself," and that can be in so many different aspects. And yeah, you got to do the work. Yeah. All right. Well, um, again, thank you for joining us. Do you want to um, share your social media stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, so I'm actually only on Instagram. I don't know how to Twitter. Um, <laughs> it's called Tweet. <laughs> By the way, Donald Trump. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> that that is like a major insult today. Uh, I, I definitely take that Apologize. back. Apologize. I definitely take that back. She's gonna I'm be like, sorry. you know what? Like, wait. Wow, I thought he said he liked me. And then he calls me Trump. Trump. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's it's just Gabrielle underscore Curry. Uh, G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E underscore Curry. C-U-R-R-Y. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Curry. Um, thanks for listening to the first episode of season two. Hopefully, um, you guys just really enjoyed this and you come back and um, download our podcast into whatever podcast uh, media. Go to counseling. Go, go to therapy. Okay. Um, work on yourself. Challenge yourself. Be uncomfortable and do therapy. Um, take your medication. <laughs> if that's where you are, like... Take your medication. <laughs> um, that is okay. Um, but we just want everyone to really work on being better people. And we want really a better society. So um, I love you. I love you too. Um, follow us on Instagram. Um, follow us on or download us on um, Apple Podcasts, all the podcast apps. Please give us highest ratings on the app. If um, you don't like us, please don't give us low ratings. <laughs> Email us. Like, yeah, just tell us what we can do. Tell us what we can do better, but damn, don't shit on us. <laughs> and um, we'll see you guys for episode two. Have a beautiful, beautiful week until we see. Talk to you guys again.